is the Bloody Disgusting Podcast Network. What was this thing of unbelievable and unequal terror that challenged Godzilla to a battle of unhuman strength? Boils and ghouls, lock your doors and strap yourselves in. From Los Angeles, California, Bloody Disgusting presents the Boo Crew Podcast. Horror news, commentary, reviews, interviews, and more. With your hosts, Lauren and Trevor Shand and Leone D'Antonio. Hello, this is Trevor, and for myself, Lauren, and Leo, welcome to episode 213. This time around, you are joined by filmmaker Adam Wingard. Wow, this guy makes great stuff. From your next and the guest. How good is a guest? Oh, bloody disgusting zone VHS series and more. His back catalog is absolutely sick. This new one, it's Godzilla versus Kong. A time of release in theaters and HBO Max right now. Adam talks all about getting the chance to play in that world. His passion for the pre-production process and the art of the movie. We'll get into the terrifying ending of his phenomenal Blair Witch film, theme park rides, and a whole lot more. Episode 213 starts now. Godzilla! Modern weapons cannot kill it! It's Godzilla. These are dangerous times. Godzilla's out there and he's hurting people and we don't know why. Provoking him that we're not seeing here. I'm of the same opinion. The myths are real. There was a war. And they're the last ones standing. I keep reaching for greatness because I'm built from it. Who bows to who? Nobody gonna stop for me. Kong bows to no one. That's all we need. Another victim crawls onto the gurney for a Boo Crew autopsy. Joining the Boo Crew via the Speakeasy Studio is one of the most compelling and inventive filmmakers out there. He did his first feature in 2007 with Bill Mosley and Tiffany Shepis called Homesick, followed by the three-time award-winning Pop Skull 2010's A Horrible Way to Die, picked up three awards at Fantastic Fest. His home invasion slasher, You're Next, folded the genre over itself with something bold and original, stealing the hearts of horror fans and has turned into a genre classic. There was his entry in 2012's VHS and its sequel, ABC's of Death, 2014's The Guest, 2016's Blair Witch and his adaption of Death Note. Everything he does is empowered with mystique, passion, and reverence for all the films that we love. It's his ability to craft that into something uniquely imaginative and funneling it through his own vision and voice set as an exhilarating experience as a viewer. His new film is a much-awaited Godzilla vs. Kong, set for release in theaters and HBO Max. March 31st, we are honored to welcome its director, Adam Wingard. Yeah! Yeah! <laughs> hey, man, thank you, and congrats on this movie. And I'll tell you, it is got so much joy in it it's got the experience of what you get when giving a fan of cinema the opportunity to make their dream film they got elements of everything from robocop to alien terminator monster movies synth waves star wars and it works like some glorious theme park ride tell us just about the joy that we see reflected through this thing no, absolutely. I mean, you know, on the head, I mean, and speaking to the theme, theme park ride thing, like it's, it, it, there's literally references to the back to the future theme park ride from universal studios. Uh, like uh, there's like 
there, there's a sequence in the movie where uh, the the characters are flying their anti-gravity jets around Hong Kong. And I, I literally had my VFX supervisor sit down and watch a YouTube video that somebody had of the, the you know, the clips from the Back to the Future ride from back in the day, because that made such an impression on me. I was kind of surprised at how it didn't age quite as well as I expected the effects of the back of the future ride, but it still brought me back there, you know? So yeah, like you say, I'm a big fanboy. you know, like I have a lot of love for eighties and nineties cinema and, you know, I tried to inject the movie with that as much as possible. And that's something I've never really seen with the Godzilla and King Kong before. (laughs) What were those early impactful film experiences for you in horror and sci-fi? I kind of came to horror films a little bit late because I was really scared of horror movies. And when I say late, I'm talking like, you know, sixth grade or something or fifth grade, you know. But I remember a lot of my friends in, in school, they were already watching the the Nightmare on Elm Street movies and the and, and the Friday the 13th series like in like first grade, you know, and I felt like a total wimp. Uh, but for me, like the 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 gateway horror films were like the alien movies and the predator films because they're sci-fi action movies that have a horror element to it. But it kind of gives you the the courage sort of to, to branch over into those things, because, you know, I, I always grew up as like a star Wars fan. Like that was like, that's the pinnacle of like cinema for me when I was a kid, like that's what made me want to be a filmmaker, the Indiana Jones series, you know, Jurassic park. I I just still probably the best experience I've ever had in the theater, teenage mutant Ninja turtles also uh, 89 or 90, you know, so like, you know, those were the things that kind of brought me into the fold. I think like I'm, a huge aliens fan, you know, and, and, and the Godzilla versus Kong was the first time that I was ever able to, you know, kind of take my, you know, big sci-fi influences. And in some ways, this is sort of the culmination of my entire career because I I've always wanted to do these type of big sci-fi movies. And finally I, you know, had an opportunity and maybe I went overboard because I tried to cram everything in that I possibly could. (laughs) (laughs) I love it though. It's like a sensory, sensory overload explosion. I wanted to ask you about something that is kind of a lost art. And I know it's something that's been prevalent in a lot of your films. And I'm wondering about your element of mystique and surprise. It's injected into a lot of your work. What is the importance of those elements to you and how hard is it to protect those elements in this day and age when so much of that veil is gone? Well, you know, like, I mean, again, I think going back to influences, Tarantino's movies, you know, are still some of my favorites. He's, he's probably my favorite working director nowadays. Like he's, he's the only director that I consistently have to go see his films and I always feel surprised during his movies. I never know what he's going to do when characters are going to die. I never know when it's going to happen. And so like those kind of things, you know, are a big influence on me and mystique, I think can mean a lot of different things to different people, but like, you know, I'm a big Kubrick fan as well. And, you know, even though my films are very different really than both of those filmmakers, I guess the guest has a lot, the most influence from Tarantino of any of my movies, um, but like the, the thing about Kubrick's movies that I like is that they're designed to be watched, not just as a, um, straightforward viewing there's, there's, and it's not just about the subtext and the way that, you know, film students and, 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 and people think about subtext. There's, 
There's extremely esoteric underpinnings that can be viewed in thousands of different ways. You know, all you have to do is watch Room 237 and, you know, you can watch all the different theories on The Shining. And, you know, that's one documentary just about The Shining. And there's other ones that have even more theories that uh, that, that movie can't even like touch on because there's so many. Um, and they're all unique and, 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 and they have a lot of depth to them and they're all fascinating. And so I think that for me, like that's the way that people should be looking at cinema is that you're, you're making a multifaceted piece of art, you know, that can be appreciated from every angle and in completely different ways that don't even have anything to do with uh, normal, uh, you know, movie watching habits, you know, one of your films that has carried on that legacy and is the fodder of many YouTube vlogs and, and whatnot is 2016's Blair Witch. Uh, going right from yes. the surprise of announcing it at Comic-Con with that amazing turn when everyone thought they were going to see The Woods, right? This new original <laughs> horror film. And then, boom, it's the Blair Witch sequel. You guys are literally outside flipping posters, which was incredible. <laughs> and what you did with that movie and what you do on... Godzilla versus Kong is you put us inside the experience and going back to that that element of creating a ride. This was very much Blair Witch, the ride, especially mm-hmm. when we get to the house at the end and we're going through. You're taking us on that journey and the cramped spaces and the sound design. What were the challenges of achieving that on Blair Witch? When did you know it was actually working in the process or was there ever a moment where you're like, you know what? I, I don't know if we're getting what we need or you know, when did that reveal itself? I mean, that's the challenge with found footage in general is that you never feel like it's working because it's a nightmare to shoot found footage. It's just like, because you're so restrained to the POV element that, you know, normally when you're making a film, it's the sky's the limit. You know, you can put the camera wherever you want to. I mean, obviously there's a best place for it for the scene usually. And it's about you trying to figure that out, but you never usually have to think kind of linearly with found footage. You tend to have to think in a very linear way because the camera can only do what the camera should be able to do in those moments. And, um, and so that, that gives you not that many options and it, it just, it, it never feels that exciting when you're shooting it ever, you know, you're just looking at it. You're just like, okay, bumping around with this camera and, you know, um, it, you know, and all that kind of stuff. But with that film, like I, you know, and you're right. I, I did want that movie to be the, the the Blair Witch like kind of like theme park ride experience. I wanted to just take you in there and put you put you in their shoes. You know, you're literally standing in the corner with them at the end, like crawling through that tunnel and feeling the claustrophobia. And I, I don't know, like I you know, I, I I just like the 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 idea of you know putting the audience in these kind of POV kind of experiences. I felt like that once we got to the end of that movie, that things were definitely working just because it was like hard to watch it, you know, like, especially that tunnel scene. Yeah. I remember when we were filming it, it was like one of the scariest sequences I've ever felt like, like literally on set because, you know, the actor is really in that tunnel, you know, like it's really that small. We built it just for her size. And, um, and it was so intense that, like the the camera operators because there was always an extra camera operator actually in that tunnel which makes it even more claustrophobic because he's kind of in front of her and kind of helping things and he's kind of going backwards we're kind of like pulling him through this thing and i remember at one point that callie the lead actress her performance was so intense in that tunnel where she's kind of like stuck and she's having a freak out that she was she starts kind of hyperventilating in the scene and the the camera operator in there is just like all right i'm right here with you and she's just like 
no, no, no. I'm, I'm in character right now. Hold on. It, it, was, it was like, it was so real that like, you know, that he, he even thought it was real. Cause I think a lot of these, like we, a couple of these camera operators had panic attacks and they had to get pulled out. And, you know, uh, she was actually the bravest one and was able to deal with it. But um, it was, it was an intense, intense thing to do. I could never do it. I'm claustrophobic. So I was like, I'm not getting Oh, So was the footage a composite of both stuff that was actually coming out of a camera she was holding and this is this B camera behind her? There, yeah, it was like, well, we just did different, like, it, it was all supposed to be one camera, but I, I'm trying to remember why there was an operator in there. I think it was because it was specifically for the moment when she uh, gets stuck. So she kind of throws the camera. And so the operator there was to help out somehow with that. And, um, and then whenever she flips the camera back around, it was a different take or something. Uh, but we all, but the only way to get into that tunnel is you had to go in one side and out the other. So, I mean, you could take it apart, but it was like a, a half hour reset. So it would like totally fuck us over. So it was highly encouraged that if you go in, you have to go in one side and out the other, you know, which was quite a long you know, stretch. <laughs> oh my God. And you worked on the soundtrack for that film as well as some of the pieces for your next. You are an excellent composer. What do you love about getting your hands dirty in that part of it? You know, I mean, maybe it's just like the, the, the control freak in me that, you know, I think all directors kind of have that streak a little bit, but um, you know, with, with, with Blair, Witch, specifically the reason why I did all the music in that film was because it was supposed to not sound like music, you know, and I'd always been doing sound design, you know, since the early days. And so I had a lot of experience doing things that sounded like the Blair Witch score. And not only that, but like the things that I were doing were always inspired by that kind of that piece of like the only score in the original Blair Witch projects, which plays during the end credits. I always thought that was the coolest sounding thing. And so weirdly, I kind of carried that influence all over the years. If you watch my early film, Pop Skull, um, there's a lot of sound design in there that kind of has a little bit of that vibe to it. And uh, in, in some ways, a lot of the times, like the music that I've done, you know, was, was kind of out of necessity. Like your next, for instance, if you look at the credits, there's like five different composers or more in the film. And it's because like uh, initially my, uh, my friends, Kyle McKinnon and Justin Lee were the composers and they did the majority of the score, but then Justin Lee, he's an eccentric guy. He kind of disappeared. He went off and like got baptized and like, we didn't see him for a while. And we're like, Hey, we got, you know, the premieres is pretty soon. We, we got to, you know, finish the score and we just couldn't find him. At, at some point, like I'm literally like having to show a new cut to the producers and I'm just up all night at the office like trying to figure out what I'm going to do for this, you know, cause I still don't have a piece of music. So I had my iPod with me and I downloaded some, uh, some like kind of like little synth programs on my iPod. And so I literally just like played them into a final cut and then kind of mixed them in final cut as a piece of music, just as like a temp thing. And I'll never forget. It was like the first moment that I really felt like a, a real musician was I played the, the, the edit for my producer and he watches it and he goes, he goes, oh, I like that music. Do you think we can uh, get the rights to that track? And I was like, <laughs> I think we can. <laughs> That's amazing. Nice. <laughs> the Boo Crew will be right back. Warning, Godzilla versus The Thing, a shattering motion picture, not for the weak of heart. Here in all its astounding realism is a soul-shocking experience. How much terror can you stand? 
What was this thing of unbelievable and unequaled terror that challenged Godzilla to a battle of unhuman strength versus supernatural evil? Godzilla versus the thing. See the war of the giants. See the birth of the world's most terrifying monster. See armies of the world destroyed by the thing. The producers of Godzilla vs. The Thing issue warning to those who cannot take its full horror. To you with guts, you must see Godzilla vs. The Thing from the beginning in color scope from American International. Talk about building the musical world of Godzilla versus Kong. You have everything from Junkie XL providing the score, and then you got these unpredictable musical surprises that you wouldn't expect. It's a sensory explosion for the ear in that sense. Yeah, no, I mean, like I, that was that was something that I was really excited to put my spin on was um, it's bringing a bit of my kind of synthwave um, uh, leanings into a Godzilla and Kong score. You know, like I knew that it was always going to be kind of a hybrid bombastic orchestral score with the electronics and you know obviously junkie xl is is somebody who who you know is already really well known for kind of being able to do that and ride that line and so he was just kind of a natural fit i love his mad max score and um so we kind of just hit it off and he, he knew basically what i was looking for right away and but on top of that, I knew the, the movie needed some songs to it, you know, and because um, I, I wanted the, the tone to come a little bit from 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 that. I wanted some pieces of music that, that tell you that this movie's fun and, you know, you're supposed to lean in in that kind of way. So, yeah, we've got some Elvis tracks. We've got Judas Priest, you know, specifically with uh, with Elvis. I kind of saw Kong as being sort of like, you know, uh, Vegas uh, post Vegas era, 1970s Elvis, a little washed out, but like he's, that's my favorite version of Elvis, you know? And so right away, that was the first song that we had in the film that I, I was really dead set that we, we had to get like a old Elvis, uh, country track. And, and, uh, and, and, and I think it works perfectly. It's like, that's, that's one of my favorite moments and favorite cuts in the movie is when we get a little bit of Elvis singing over Kong sleeping on the boat. <laughs> That's amazing. Uh, talking about theme parks and after watching this film, I just feel like there needs to be like an Oculus version of this film. Like, was there ever a talk about doing something in VR? Because it's so beautiful. I want to be in that I moment. I, I would love to. I mean, like I've always thought like secretly, it's like, man, if this movie's a hit, maybe we can get some sort of like theme park ride out of it. Cause I mean, like, w- wouldn't it be so cool to be able to like ride around Godzilla and Kong while they're fighting? I mean, like what better version of a ride could you think of? But no, I don't know. I in terms of VR, I'm, I'm not sure. I haven't heard anything, but um, it's also one of those things that like, if this movie is a big hit, uh, whatever that looks like after the pandemic, they're going to be looking for every way they can to try to, you know, bring people in and, and keep people engaged. So hopefully things like that will come up. And notice the story is conceived by Trick or Treat's Mike Doherty and Zach Shields, who did King of Monsters. How much did their story dictate where your film went? How far beyond this does their version of the mythology go? And when do others take it over? 
Well, basically, like the story was originally conceived by Terry Rossio in a writer's room. And so whenever I came on board, that's that's what existed. Right. And so um, he had like a couple page outline and then he and I broke it down and then he worked on it as a script. So Terry was the first one to write the first two drafts of it. And then a little bit later, Mike Doherty came on uh, with Zach. They were just finishing up uh, King of Monsters. This was before it came out. And so they, uh, the, the main spin that they put on it was that they, they, they took the character Gia, like she used to be a slightly different character named Olivia, and they uh, put her on Skull Island, which is kind of something that I was actually really hoping to do anyway. So it really kind of worked out. So they kind of like took the, this kind of pre-existing character, gave her a slightly different background. There was a, a bit of a different plot, but that a lot of that stuff got cut. There's a couple elements that, that they created, like, for instance, the scene in the diner. I remember with uh, Bernie, the conspiracy theorist, you know, where they're kind of talking in the diner. They created that scene. There's just a bunch of stuff that they kind of helped push it along. It's so hard to say. I mean, like with a movie like this, there's like there's like 50 writers, you know what I mean? And like who did what at this point? I couldn't. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I was watching the credit list, man. It's thousands yeah. literally of people yeah. working on well, this. There series. It is. Yeah. They, I mean, if we had, if we actually credited every writer who worked on this movie, that the credits would be 10 minutes longer, you know what I mean? But, uh, <laughs> but that's the magic of these films. You know, you, you're, you're constantly trying things and you're, you're playing with different ideas and, and, you know, and ultimately, you know, my job as the director is to guide it and try to keep it all together and try to pick all the pieces that work the best. And, um, yeah, it's a it's 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 a magnificent undertaking. <laughs> yeah, there's some spectacular fight scenes between Godzilla and Kong, especially in the third act. What was the process like in choreographing their fights? Was the pre-production choreography done with toys or friends in suits acting out the fight sequences? How was that done? You know, like the, 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 the ocean battle, for instance, was kind of previs and, uh, you know, that one was, you know, all done with storyboards and kind of in a, in a, in a normal way, the, the ending fights where they actually battle in uh, Hong Kong. And it's much more about the, the one-on-one, you know, the, this is it kind of moment between them. That one had an interesting sort of evolution because it wasn't straightforward. It was, it was kind of just like it started with a lot of conversations, I think, with me and my um, VFX supervisor. And, you know, I would kind of describe to him and his team what we wanted. And they would start with I think with that one, there was a lot less storyboards. And we kind of just started with the animation from what I remember, which is a really strange way to do it, because because uh, so, that meant the animators all just like kind of started throwing in ideas, you know, and then we started picking sort of the best ones and, you know, and then we kind of steered it in these different directions, you know, like I knew like there was like some specific things that I wanted to see. I don't want to give anything away, but like there was a throwback in that fight uh, that was really important to me to the original King Kong versus Godzilla. So it, it was one of those things where it was a lot of fun, but it was um, it just kind of happened over like two years, you know, like, I don't know how to put it any other way than that. We just tried basically everything that you could imagine happening between Godzilla and King Kong and that ending, we tried it, you know what I mean? And a lot of it probably lived for a while. And then eventually you you just have to keep whittling it down and you just have to try to be as objective as possible and say, okay, what is actually the coolest moments of this? What, you know, thematically is working, you know, and you have to start thinking of it in terms of like a WWE match. What's the ebbs and flows? You know, how do we throw people off the scent of where we're going with this kind of thing and, uh, and, and that kind of stuff. 
Godzilla has like a 70 plus year history with Toho at the helm. Uh, did they have an involvement at all with this film? Yeah, I mean, like, I mean, Toho always has an involvement, I think, with anything Godzilla related. But at the end of the day, they 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 gave me like pretty much total space to do whatever I wanted. Like that, you know, Toho actually has some rules with what you can and can't do with Godzilla, you know, like and in terms of especially just his what he the way he acts. And, you know, so they do have like some guidelines, but they never actually I don't remember them actually stepping in and say, oh, we don't like that. As a matter of fact, it was exactly opposite the head of the company came to visit us in uh, Australia. We were shooting there. That's where we were doing all of our soundstage work. Right. And it's a funny story because we had uh, had the editors cut together sort of like a five minute sizzle reel of just like all the coolest shots that we had done at that point. And it had some of the pre biz and, you know, it was all edited together real fancy. Right. And so I was kind of nervous because I was like, oh man, I hope that they like what we're doing and like what we're doing with Godzilla. So I'm shooting and I finish a shot and I look over and there's the Toho guys. They've just watched the sizzle reel and they're standing talking to the producer and I walk over and the producer introduces me and the the Toho guy tells me, he's like, we saw the, um, the, uh, the sizzle reel. And he's like, he's like, we have satisfaction does being involved in a movie like this give you access to like amazing archival stuff from the history of these films in any way you know, maybe it would if like that was, you know, if we were more involved actually in Japan, but like it never really just came up, you know what I mean? Like um, I should have, I should have looked more into that, but um, I'm sure that if we had traveled over to Japan to do press, you know, cause I know when Doherty went, they like showed him like all the original suits, I think, or, oh, wow. or something like that. I feel like somebody told me that. And so, you know, I'm sure I would have done all that stuff, but you know, I'm also just as happy to sit at home. I'm kind of a, you know, uh, introvert. So, um, this is fine too. In terms of the look of Kong and Godzilla, did you give them a slight revised look or scale for certain plot points in this film? That's a good question. Cause like Godzilla stayed the same. I mean, like we kept the same asset. I wanted him to feel like the same one from the other film. I wanted it to be a real continuation. I was afraid that if I did anything too drastically different, especially because this movie was supposed to come out at the end of last year, that it was so close to King of Monsters that it's just like, it just felt like it was cheating. I, I didn't want it to feel like, you know, I mean, and I'm not knocking this movie in any way, you know, because I know it has major fans and stuff, but I, I didn't want it to feel like the way that Batman versus Superman felt to me because it was a new Batman that we were introducing in that film and it was him versus Superman. And it's like, that's hard for me to wrap my head around because like, you know, I'm having to learn who this new Batman is at the same time as I'm saying, Oh, and this is him actually fighting Superman. So it never really felt like Batman versus Superman. It's like, new Batman versus Superman is what it felt like to me, you know? And, 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 you know, and again, I don't want to knock the Snyder fans, you know, like I don't want anybody to like knock my door down. Um, like that's just my experience. And so when my approach to Godzilla was like, I wanted him to be consistent in the same ways that he felt consistent during the Showa era and all those kind of things. 
but uh you know kong you know like he was he he's younger in skull island and he hit his growth spurt between the 70s and now and um you know so i always saw him as like the grizzled gunfighter without the gunfight he's unforgiven clint eastwood it, you know in, in skull island he's you know he's good the bad and ugly clint eastwood and so you know he's older he's bigger he's a little buffer and uh he's more grizzled he's got more hair and everything um so he's different but only because of his age because of the actual time that's passed in those movies but he's still a head shorter than godzilla and um a lot of people you know initially were uh, kind of critical that we made uh they thought that we made uh, kong taller than godzilla because of the shot our initial still was of kong punching godzilla in the aircraft carrier and in that shot kong appears to be taller than godzilla but it's only because he's on his like toes and he's thrusting himself upwards and the still frame just happens to be at the point where he's up above him a little bit. But if you watch the whole shot, you know, we never cheated that kind of thing. We never made Kong bigger than Godzilla. And, um, and there's also some shots in the film where Godzilla appears smaller to people. And we've been asked like, why'd you make Godzilla smaller? But the fact of the matter is, is, he only looks that way when he's in uh, Hong Kong at the end of the film. And it's because the Hong Kong that you see is not actual real Hong Kong. We actually took the city. We added way more neon and all this stuff, a lot of different buildings. And we actually made the city bigger. So it's actually more like a super city compared to what it is. So the skyscrapers are actually just technically bigger all around in that sequence because it's supposed to be kind of a more futuristic version of the city. But that also makes uh, Godzilla seem smaller. But that's because that's the effect that we wanted for the way that we wanted that 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 fight to feel in it. And um, so, but yeah, we did not we did not shrink Godzilla is what I'll say. And Kong is definitely a head shorter than Godzilla. <laughs> <laughs> nice. I mean, the pre-production artwork and everything that went into creating these vehicles and these suits, it's outstanding. And then you have this whole, without giving anything away, this whole world that kind of becomes an e a living ELO record cover across with the Frazetta painting, right? <laughs> that this movie gets into. How much time was spent toiling on getting all those elements to look just right? And it looked like toys we'd want to buy. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that, that, that was the, one of the things I was most excited about was um, being able to do a film that, that, that would have just like loads and loads of concept art because some of my favorite things growing up were like, um, I used to carry around with me the, the art of the Return of the Jedi book, you know, there's, there's one for each one of the Star Wars films, but the Return of the Jedi one specifically was my favorite and it just had all the concept art for the film. And I just always thought that was so cool looking at all the details on the, um, the Death Star and everything. What's cool about doing a movie like this is like your pre-production is so fun as a director because you just get to react to brilliant artists doing brilliant work. And so we had a room that had about, I think at the, at the height of it was maybe like seven or eight artists and they're all top of their field concept artists. And they're just in this room and every, every day, maybe every other day, I go in there with my production designer and we walk around the room and we see what piece of art everybody's doing. And then we give them notes on it. And so the production designer is kind of like, he's given them all tasks to do different parts of the movie. He's kind of given his spin on it based on conversations that we have. And then I go in there and I'm like, well, I like this thing, but I don't like that thing. We add some lights and things like this. And, you know, um, and then, you know, and then you, uh, you finish the piece of work, you put it on the wall in another room. And then you just, we, we, we basically would just, had these rooms that were just filled from floor to ceiling with just like concept art, you know, just all around you. It was just, 
really glorious to see and also very inspirational. You can just go in there and, you know, so many ideas would, would come to you just because you're looking at all this stuff and you're like, yeah. Your own per- curating your own personal art gallery. It's amazing, dude. We got to wrap it up. Thank you so much, dude. We could talk to you for yes. another two hours, I think. We got yes, we could. <laughs> we really appreciate it, man. Thank you and congrats on the film. Thank you. Appreciate it. See you guys. See ya. That was the Boot Crew Podcast, episode 213. Special thanks to our guest, Adam Wingard. Follow him at Adam Wingard on Instagram and at time of release, see Godzilla vs. Kong in theaters and HBO Max right now. Production tracks for this one provided by Powerman 5000. Till next time, it is the Boot Crew saying sweet screams. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Boo Crew Podcast. Haunt the Boo Crew at TalesFromTheBooCrew.com. Tales from the Boo Crew on Facebook and Instagram. Follow us on Twitter at TalesFromTheBoo. The Boo Crew is Lauren and Trevor Shand and Leone D'Antonio. The Boo Crew is produced by Lauren Shand, chopped and sliced by Trevor Shand. The Boo Crew is a TSP creation, part of the bloody disgusting Podcast Network. Bye. A bloody disgusting podcast network. Home of the Boo Crew. Horror-centric interviews. SCP archives. Weekly full cast storytelling. Horror queers. Genre commentary from an LGBTQ perspective. And creepy. For disturbing and terrifying creepy pastas. Listen free wherever you stream audio and at bloodydisgusting.com slash podcasts.